And we're live, everybody. Um, welcome to Brain Food Live, episode one nine eight. Um, this is this is a, kind of an unusual show, uh, unusual show, I think, for for, for a number of reasons. Um, and uh, I, I guess it's unusual as well for something that really happened um, in a very uh, unexpected and uh, and uh, difficult way uh, last week. Uh, where we uh, had some terrible news um, from that uh, uh, we lost a member of our community, basically. Um, and I think it's only right for us to kind of set start the the, the show uh, by giving respect to the man and uh, and to uh, for his uh, amazing contribution to the industry and uh, for what he did for uh, us, the show, and everything else. So. I'll just hand over to Adam uh, for a few words uh, on that. Yeah, okay, thanks, Hung. Um, so some of you watching this will probably know uh, <clears throat> what Hung's talking about, and uh, a lot of you watching this will, will, will know who we're talking about. And, and, and uh, so uh, if you don't, my co-founder at Candidate ID, uh, Scott McRae, died a week ago today. Uh, it's devastating news for a lot of us. Uh, and I just wanted to do a quick minute or so about Scott. So he and I met in uh, 2015. We were surprised we'd never met before because we had so many mutual friends, uh, like personal friends as well as business connections. And uh, at the time, I was trying to establish how, how do we how do we solve the problem of massive candidate databases and us continuing to have to go and find new candidates because. Uh, we didn't really know very much about, you know, who was on our ATS and all that kind of thing. And he introduced me to the the idea that, well, I, I'd started to work to try and work out. We need to we need to try and understand, like, who's interested, who's interested today, and who's not. And we needed to understand candidate sentiment and like real time sentiment. And he explained to me that there was already technology in the mainstream sales and marketing world that that was dealing with that marketing automation technology and his consulting firm was one of the UK's kind of leading specialists in that area. And when we started looking at, hang on, this is something that we need in, in, uh, in talent acquisition. We went on a journey to go and work out how the hell do you build a technology company together? And, um, you know, we, we, we did it and we spent seven years, I guess, from idea through to, uh, no longer working together formally a couple of weeks ago. Uh, uh, on on an amazing adventure together, and, and we had so many so many great times all over Europe and in the States. And um, Scott brought a lot of uh, passion and energy to the room. He lit up the room when he walked in. The amount of times we went to so many different events together, where I might have known a handful of people, he possibly knew new but knew nobody. Um, and, uh, by the end of the evening, you know, we'd leave at the same time a few hours later and he'd have made loads of friends. And every time I saw him, he had people around him, you know, um, captivated with, uh, what he was talking about in terms of like marketing automation and its impact on talent acquisition, um, as well as just all the fun stuff, the irrelevant things, the, the stories and the jokes and, um, just what a what a what a popular and charismatic guy he was. He helped our industry to get more sophisticated um, uh, in terms of thinking about better marketing. 
uh, better ways of doing marketing, better ways of using automation technologies. And um, much as he wasn't always the like front of house for candidate ID, he was very much the brains behind the scenes. And uh, so I, I wanted to just pay a little bit of a tribute there. And also some of you might be wondering, why the hell is Adam on this show like a week later? Well, yeah, everyone deals with things in different ways. And one of the ways that I go about dealing with things is um, I try and keep routine and try and get on with things. And I'm, I'm trying, much as I've cancelled some things this week, there's things that I just wanted to keep keep going with. And you know, this is one. I'm going to tell the truth. I, I haven't read the brain food in the same way that I normally do. I have got some things to talk, to, to talk about, but... Um, you know, I, I haven't I haven't read it in, in as much detail as I normally do. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just I'm really sorry that I'm having to talk about this. But Scott was a, a brilliant asset to our industry, gone too soon. And I know that I speak for many people who, who, who knew him um, that just like what a popular guy and what a loss to our industry. And Hung, you knew him well. So um, I, it, it's impacted so many of us. Thank you, Adam. Um, so rest in peace, uh, Scott McRae, you will not be forgotten. Um, okay, so um, listen, it's a bit of a muted start to uh, the show um, and I might have caught a few people by surprise. Um, I just want to say uh, thank you, firstly, um, to our sponsors for this show um, uh, for being uh, sort of happy for us to, to have this type of start. Um, uh, I hope that that doesn't sort of uh, damage their sort of uh, sort of investment in supporting us either um so uh please do uh, uh check out uh symphony talent uh if you are looking for a recruitment marketing solution um we'll share the link into the chat stream uh here today uh just in the chat stream there uh so please um check them out if you're looking for a recruitment marketing solution there um okay so adam i didn't expect that you would have read the, the newsletter i actually anticipated that we wouldn't be covering it but if you have read something then i'm yeah. happy to talk through a few things i've got a couple let's do it quickly so um i, I found it really interesting to read the um information from uh rs consultancy part of resource solutions about the uh average length of time to to apply uh through the different um applicant tracking systems going from workable at one minute through to Oracle at five and a half minutes or nearly six minutes. Um, that's a pretty considerable difference. And when we think about this subject, I often wonder about like, yeah, if the, if the application takes a very long time, that's a, that's a problem. Like more than five minutes is a problem. But at the same time, if you make it so easy that it's like a 60 second process, you're going to end up with a lot of people who aren't committed to the process at all. So, you know, there's got to be some balance in there and there's got to be some thinking around, well, people that are doing it on, on mobile phones as opposed to having laptops and things, you're going to make it easier for them and, and, and whatever. But um, it, was, it was really interesting to see that almost a league table of uh, applications by length of time. What is the optimal length of time? If, it, if there is a too fast, like what's your guess? As the, as what would be i mean somewhere in the somewhere in the middle probably seems about right to me but i think for the jobs where people are applying for lots of jobs of course you want to keep it you want to keep it pretty low but when somebody's applying for a job at maybe 30k plus like 
you know, you should, I would have thought that they, they should have the commitment to be able to put in five minutes. So it would be interesting if you were able to toggle the length of the expected applicant flow based on how skilled the job is or what the barrier to entry is, I guess. Like, for, for instance, in certain jobs where you're literally happy to interview anybody, irrespective of skill set, you know, I think, sure, one click, get in, no worries. But if you're looking at a higher level job that actually, you know, it does take a bit of thought consideration, you need to do a few things. I wonder whether any ATS has actually produced some sort of configurability that you could simply say, look, add an additional uh, set of questions or something um, as you go through, rather than have to redesign every single job sort of posting uh, from scratch, so to speak. Do you know what I mean? It's usually a universal thing, I think, um, when you uh, configure it. Absolutely. This area is really up for grabs. Uh, and I believe, you know, people say, oh, nobody, the world doesn't need a new applicant tracking system. Well, Paradox didn't agree with that. And mm. this just this week, what have they announced to nobody's surprise that Absolutely. their product is capable of being an applicant tracking system for high volume hiring. So for those like hourly paid roles and things like that, where you need to uh, bring people in and you've got to make it as easy as possible, it's a conversational based applicant tracking system. You don't need any other ATS for those volume uh, work. If you're using Paradox, it's gone into the market as a chatbot. Um, and you know most people in the know knew that that was more than a chatbot and it was always going to be more than a chatbot. Um, but it's a new entrant to the applicant tracking system world. Where would it be? It would be down at that one minute level, the workable you know level, or maybe yeah. even less, maybe 30 seconds. But it's certainly... Its purpose is to make it as easy as possible for those hourly paid people. The entire McDonald's estate of the United States are using it as their ATS for yeah. all their for all their store, you know, their retail jobs. Yeah, absolutely. I think Paradox and is it Fountain? I think the, the, you're the one coming out of the US that are the big, like big innovators, I think, in the high volume space. Uh, very exciting. And it is a chat interface. I think the fact that they generally have started from chatbot downwards so to speak obviously is really with zeitgeist because with chat gbt and so on has completely changed what we expect from a user interface in my opinion uh martin redstone if you're watching this i do stand by my my comment and you adam i do stand by my comment um that uh, it leads to an end of design at the front end um because we're going to just go to the command line we're simply just going to want an input box and it'll just output what we want um but yeah very interesting to see the implications to candidate apply when the interface is actually a bot uh, rather than a form. Um, so this would be an interesting thing to monitor. I don't know the people at Fountain, but I know quite a few of the people at, at Paradox, including the founder, Aaron Matos. And uh, I, I think it's very unlikely that that was, was, was built, that company was built to be a chatbot company. I think it was built with a much, much bigger goal in mind. And that's what's finally emerging into the market. I think yeah, so. I'm not surprised. Yeah, um, and good luck to them. They're a, a former mm. sponsor of Brain Food, actually, so one of our faves. So and a future sponsor. and a future sponsor, I would expect. I, I hope so. They won't give me any more money. Uh, so maybe they got tired of Brain Food. Who knows? They don't need us anyway. So that's all good. Um, okay, give us uh, one more, Adam. Uh, one more time, actually. Well, yeah. Okay, so John John Sullivan's article: AI is going to dominate talent acquisition. Uh, yeah, okay, so a few of the points that he made, like AI will make up for TA's shortcomings because we haven't done it right until now is what he's saying. 
He's saying the exec expects it. He's saying that AI is going to become the driver for TA becoming a data-driven function. And he said that the key to every recruiter's future job security is learning artificial intelligence. Now, I've got a couple of comments about this. Um, if you replace the term artificial intelligence with technology, then I don't disagree with what you're saying. But I think that there's large swathes of our industry who are almost as if they're like high on chat GPT and going, this thing's going to change absolutely everything. There are a million changes that are more impactful than chat GPT in recruitment today. And they're all about automating and making better candidate experiences and doing things that are, are going to reduce friction and all that sort of stuff. And they're nothing to do with artificial intelligence. They're just about making, making better processes. AI is, AI is really important and the future of our industry, AI is a big part of it, but there's loads of technological enhancements which are already here, which have changed the shape of the TA function and have nothing to do with artificial intelligence. Yeah, I mean, that's a strong comment. And I think we can, we, there's, a, there's a body of opinion that follows your view. I'm, I, I'm more obviously aligned with Dr. J on this. I do think it's a big way that kind of changes uh, so many of the elements, the foundational elements of, uh, of the idea of, uh, of how we move data around uh, and how we generate information. Um, I think it will have a huge impact. But in the interim, there's still going to be some spot checks that we can do. But going on to Dr. J's most important point, which I think was true, I think there'll be executive demand for AI adoption. Um, and that is going to be a very important signal to TA leaders because it means that, you know what, you need to kind of make sure that your TA team is operating as efficiently as possible with new technology and not be perceived as some sort of laggard within the organization, particularly if you're also then tasked with recruiting in the sort of AI friendly, AI comfortable candidates into your organization that your uh, CEO uh, demands. I see it very much like a, I see AI enablement as this, as today's digital transformation. Um, uh, it's, it's, it's today's requirement to move everything into a position where actually people are going to be comfortable with the tooling that has fundamentally changed. Um, we don't have too much time to talk about this, Adam. Um, if, if you don't, so... Just one quick, 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 one quick response. To that. If you, if you don't have the mechanisms for collecting the data, you don't have any opportunity to use artificial intelligence and where most companies are in, in talent acquisition right now, they're not collecting the data that's of any use to any form of artificial intelligence. Uh, and then the only other thing is um, in terms of, the in terms of I, I, I've already said it o, 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 <laughs> the, the opportunity the opportunity around automation is much more is much more tangible today than around talent than around uh, uh, artificial intelligence. We will have this debate another time, um, but because because uh, we're going to do more on AI, obviously that's critically important. Um, so okay, uh, maybe time for one more if you want to throw it in there before uh, we get our guests on. Yeah, was there a tech hiring bubble? I mean, that actually links to what my, the point I was just making there, right? Accenture have just announced 19,000 redundancies yesterday. There's a lot of organizations making big swathes of redundancies. And I, I just wonder how much of these redundancies are actually companies um, 
taking the impetus and telling their teams in TA and in every other team, you've got to work out how to do more with less. You've got to automate those processes. You've got to use AI to do it. You've got to, you know, I, I, I just wonder how much downward pressure there is from the CEO and the CFO around um, cost control or around creating more productive working environments through automating stuff. And it's not just market driven. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think so. Um, I mean, we're going to see, we're going to keep seeing them and it's going to be each time will be, will feel like a massive concussive blow again. Indeed, of course, uh, earlier this week, uh, 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 let go uh, 2000 people, including, yeah. as I understand it, almost all of their T18. Um, so um, there's, the, 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 there is a succession of growth for a lot of these go ahead tech companies. Um, and a kind of a re-scoping as to how big uh, an organization in terms of headcount they need to be for the external environment, which looks differently uh, from as they might have expected from 12 months or so ago. Uh, but also now with the intrusion of uh, artificial intelligence, potentially changing how a lot of these jobs are performed, um, then you do wonder, okay, how, mu how much of this is the challenge from a CEO saying, okay, we're cutting this back and we're growing it back up again in future but with a very different sort of set of numbers and a different set of skills, basically less people, more AI enabled people. I'm, um, I'm constantly reviewing job boards and seeing what's getting posted and what's popular. And I'm constantly looking at job ads going, why does that job still exist? Why is that bank or that utilities company or that manufacturing company still hiring people that do that? Yeah. yeah. You know, and, and, and so I, I just wonder if, if actually there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, tech enabled, um, let's call it efficiencies happening, which are like almost hiding in plain sight because people are using the economic conditions as a smokescreen. Yeah, well, smokescreen or not, I mean, basically it's, uh, they're going to re-rationalize re the, the organization, you know? Of course, um, yeah, exactly. And it's competitive market, so if you don't do it, you'd be carrying extra weight into whatever that future looks like. So it makes sense in some yeah. in many regards okay listen let's get on with the show um and, and it's just by pure coincidence that there is obviously some overlap um you know we are talking about mental challenges we are talking about uh mental challenges of the neurodiverse adam you're actually a uh a, i think you now identify as a, as a person in that category not quite um, well, not, not 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 quite i actually i so i i i went and, i went and got formally tested for adhd and was really quite shocked to find that I was, she put me just on the line of not ADHD, but she said that if I'd done it 10 years ago, I would have been. So I, right. I've, I really identify with it. Yeah. Let me stop you there because a lot of people out there who are watching the show are interested in the topic, but they maybe have a variable, variable kind of uh, degree of understanding on it. And I include that myself in this. Um, like what, like how, how, how are you tested for this? Is it a bunch of questions you have to ask or is someone like shining a, a, a torch in your eye or something looking at pupil dilation? Like how does this work? You, you do. So in the case of what I did, I, I went to see somebody, I've got like family members who were, who have been, uh, formally, uh, diagnosed as ADHD and it just got me thinking, hang on, I've got exactly the same, you know, set of circumstances and, uh you do a questionnaire and then you and then you get somebody close to you in my case it was my wife did a questionnaire it's what i think about myself what she thought about me you do a couple of interviews 
And based on that, and oh, you get like uh, she looked at my old school reports from when I was um, specifically between like eleven and uh, between about ten and twelve years old, for some reason. Um, and then uh, I went back a few weeks later and got told where I was on a spectrum. And if the spectrum is over here, you've got ADHD so much that it's really causing problems for your life. And over here, you don't have it at all. I was like, but I was bang in the middle, but I was just on the side where it was, yeah, not diagnosed. But yeah. as I say, other people in my family ha have been diagnosed and take medication for it. All right. So that's worth thinking about. Firstly, like we have to be careful that we don't create like very fixed categorical buckets uh, where this person has or has not and stuff like this, um, because it is a spectrum, right? It is it's, it's kind of a measurement, uh, let's say, of behaviors or traits. Um, and, you know, if, if you quantify it on numbers, uh, you know, 100 at the extreme end, zero at another, all of us are going to be at some part of that spectrum. And what yeah. we're saying or what we understand is the case is if we are not described as ADHD or we are not described as having that particular condition, we are on that spectrum where it doesn't affect us significantly. Um, like we, we we don't need to have a strategy around sort of uh, not, dealing no. with whatnot or we don't take no. medications. No, not so necessarily. So if it was on a scale of one to 100, I was 49. And she and, and I got told that I would have been probably like 55, maybe 10 years ago. But because I've developed, I stopped drinking. I did various different things that have enabled me to develop strategies, which mean that it's considerably less pronounced than it maybe you know would have been in the past. It doesn't mean I don't have it any less. It just means that it's not impacting my life the way that I was. And and they also they they look at it in terms of like lots of different aspects of it. So I was like through the roof on impulsivity. But I was kind of, you know, a bit more near the middle on certain other uh, aspects to it. Yeah. Okay. So, so as I understand it, then when people say I have ADHD or whatever sort of uh, a condition it might be, is it is it a description of a behavior then, or is it a description of a potential behavior or the likelihood of, or is it? Well, um, I mean, the, I mean, formally, I have ADHD means you've got either a clinical diagnosis or you have self-diagnosed sufficiently that you can just go, you, you, you just say that. But I mean, like most of us have some kind of this type of thing in, in some way or, or another. Um, uh, but in terms of like how it manifests, it's different in, in different people. Males, different to females, very often completely different. Um, children, adults, again, completely different. So an adult male and a juvenile female may have nothing in common no 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 traits whatsoever in common but they both have adhd i mean this is just this is the only one i know about i don't know very much about any yeah. others it's the only one that i know about yeah and of course these are actually quite new conditions right and they also change as you mentioned um over time you know the medical profession will have different views on these matters we actually have very good history of how different social behaviors have often been categorized in different ways once upon a time, you know, uh, if, if you profess the idea that women should be uh, uh, needing to uh, sort of have, have the franchise, you'd be considered insane and off you go to the sanatorium. You know, I mean, those, those so, so it's, it's kind of we can't isolate it entirely from social and cultural context. Um, but where we're at now is that essentially we are familiar with these terms um, and we use it to describe 
certain behaviors and typically human beings are on a spectrum of this and as you mentioned adam different people will have different coping strategies or management strategies with or without uh, instruction from professionals uh, you might self-generate these or you might someone might teach you or train you uh, and with or without medical support sometimes you might be medicated on this um so uh, folks i mean let me know but by the way i i have to again caveat um adam and i and i think everyone else coming on the show are not medical professionals not trained we're just kind of exploring this so it is high likelihood i'm going to say things that are going to upset people i do it purely because i'm clumsy with it so please understand that that's the case um and if i do get it wrong do let me know in the comments yeah um because I, i'm here to be educated as much as anything else so um i hope that's uh, i hope you, you understand the sentiment there um so, since i one one interesting thing is since i since i learned a lot more about it over the last 12 18 months um i mean i'm i'm having to do this quite subtly but or, or not subtly softly i've pointed out to a couple of people or i've told i've told the stories about things and they've gone hmm, that might be me or that might be my child or whatever and quite a few times they've gone and got themselves tested and found yeah it was so you know not knowledge about this subject the more knowledge we have about this subject the better and it's really spreading. The, the understanding of it's really spreading. And the more understanding we have of it, the more uh, you know care, care we will have for each other. Yep, I hope so. I hope so. Um, so let's see what other people say. I think the way we're going to do this, folks, we've got three, three friends that we're going to bring on the show. We're going to do them individually, bring them on and off, and then bring them all together. Because I want to kind of spend a bit of time with each person, um, particularly if they... Uh, seemingly, uh, uh, as I understand, because I haven't even spoken to them about, the, about, about their particular case, but I think they have different sort of uh, uh, conditions that we want to explore and learn more about. So let's bring on Vanessa firstly, um, and um, our friend Vanessa, who's with us last week, um, but she was um, uh, uh, going to join us today and talk about, uh, I think, also a ADHD. So let's see whether Vanessa can come on. There she is. Vanessa Rath, great to see you. What a wonderful smile as always, brightening the day. <laughs> Hello, James. How's it How going? You been? Yes. I'm good. good I'm good. good. Nice great. to see you. Yeah, great to see you, Vanessa. Uh, Vanessa, for the people who don't know you, do you want to quickly introduce yourself? Who are you? What it is you do? So my name is Vanessa Roth. Um, I have been very busy this week. I've probably appeared on a screen near you. I want to just have a disclaimer. I have four of these shirts. I don't wear the same one every time you see me on screen. That's really important. I have to say that. Um, I'm a global talent sourcing trainer. Um, I do a lot of keynote speaking. I do a lot of emceeing. And um, yeah, I just love talent sourcing, anything to do with recruitment and giving back to this amazing uh, community. So thanks to everyone who's in the chat. And I think it's really ironic that you brought me on first when I woke up one morning to a Facebook messenger message from Mark and Butter saying, we've, we volunteered, we've contacted Hung to go on a show to talk about our, our neurodiverse um, characteristics and you joining us. So I'm so glad that I'm here first. Well, I mean, I'm, it's always a pleasure to have you, uh, Vanessa. Um, Thank you. And I think what we want to try and do today with this show, slightly different, is to mm -hmm. talk with individuals that have conditions. Uh, and mm -hmm. if you could explain what that condition is, how it manifests, and and you know how how you how you I guess deal with it, because um, uh, all of the people who are on this on the show have succeeded at elite level in in their in their fields. Uh, but I presume there's challenges involved in that. So can you uh, sort of describe exactly you know what the condition is and where you discovered it and how it manifests? Sure. And Adam, I really like the way that you explained ADHD. It was very clear and, and on point. 
Um, so I've always known from, from a young age through my childhood that I have been different to other people, different weird, different ha-ha, all of those kind of things. But um, I did struggle through school. I, I worked hard, um, but I was also the, the student who was quite disruptive. But I always could read the room. So I knew when I was going to break that last straw on you know, the teacher's back, the camel's back, before she lost it and kind of just, just yelled at everyone. Also, I was a very likable child. So very lucky, you know, nice smile, good personality, could get away with a lot. I wasn't a horrible, naughty child, but I was disruptive. And a lot of the time was because I was bored. And it wasn't because I was bored because I'm super intelligent. It literally was because if there's not something new happening all the time, something shiny and sparkly in my life, I lose interest. Back at school, I was never tested, to be honest. It wasn't a thing that was done. It wasn't anything that was on the radar. It was that long ago. But then I actually moved across to London and um, it became very obvious. Um, after school, I studied to be a teacher and I taught at a school in Southfields, beautiful school. And um, we were used to have staff meetings once a week. And I used to get really disruptive in the staff meetings. It'd been a long day. I was tired. Um, and the school psychologist actually pulled me aside and said, Van, we've got to talk about you being so disruptive. I know you're not doing it on purpose, but I think we need to have you tested for ADHD. And by that stage of my life, I'd had quite a few kids in my class with ADHD. Being a teacher, it didn't really matter that you have ADHD because, you know, the more enthusiastic you are, you know, the, the better your lessons are, the more creative you are, that kind of occupation. It didn't really matter how badly ADHD I was. Like Adam said, went through the variety of the te of tests and things. And there I was like pretty much on the far end of the scale of being completely ADHD. I did go into medication for a while, but then my life course changed. I went and lived in Thailand and traveled around the world for two years. I didn't need to be taking Ritalin or drugs or anything at that point because there was no need. I didn't really need to sit down and focus. Come back to South Africa, start working in the recruitment industry. My boss recognizes I'm good at what I do. I'm making placements, but no one else in the team is making placements because I'm such a disruptive force within the office. So this is when I'm in my, my 30s, early 30s go back to a doctor, get retested, still ADHD, and go into medication. And to be honest with you, have been on that medication since. Um, I literally can tell when I sit down in the morning and I start work early, part of the ADHD thing, um, if I haven't taken my Ritalin. So I take the strongest version of Ritalin that is out there. I think they call it Adderall in the US. I think it's also Ritalin in Europe. And I know because I cannot focus on one task. I also know in the afternoons when it's wearing off, so Badish is going to laugh at this, but we deliver a lot of diversity sourcing workshops together. And when we do the late ones in the US, I then have to take more medication to get me through those evening um, sessions because I need the Ritalin in my system in order just to be able to focus and to say what I want to say in a succinct kind of, kind of manner. Um, other things that I do around having um, ADHD is I try not to work late into the evening. So a prime example, this week, Wednesday, I finished emceeing Sourcing Summit at about 10, then went to bed and couldn't sleep until early hours of the morning because my brain was too active. So I know I need to get up early in the morning. I need to start work. I need to get everything that's important done first up in the morning. And I shouldn't be doing anything late at night. I really need to shut down at five. But having a lot of clients in North America, it's not always possible. But I've got to have a balance. I then have to start the day later and take my Ritalin later. And to be honest, just the closing points on this, gents. 
I don't see it as anything negative in my life. Um, I have a lot of nicknames. One of my big nicknames is Squirrel. You often hear people call me Squirrel. Um, I do refer to my ADHD as my superpower because I really do not believe that I would have achieved what I've achieved from South Africa by not having ADHD, not being disruptive, not having a thought. Um, so I do see it as a positive and I get things done very quickly. Um, and I'm a very quick learner, which I do believe is also down to the ADHD. That's a brilliant um, way of, thank you very much, Vanessa. I mean, wasn't that a great way of, I mean, I, I think I'm so, I feel like very much uh, more educated having just listened to your story there. Um, I hope all of you here feel the same. So a few things I've learned here is that there is some signs in your case, it was kind of the disruption in, in group setting because your kind of interest level wasn't held by, you know, I guess, I mean, the meet a group meeting must be the worst thing because they can drone on and on. Um, and any, by the way, folks, anybody who's been on a Zoom meeting with more than three people, yes, uh, your, your attention is going to wander. Yeah. I don't care where you are on the spectrum. Um, but what you're saying is you, you would react to that by kind of just trying to change it by disrupting it. Now, do you think that's an attempt to create some interest? Is, is, is that... Yeah, because some people are just boring. And, you know, you, if you're having a meeting with 20 people, why be boring? And, and I think that's why, like with my, my training, I, I, I literally say I treat all of my training like an Oscar performance because I don't want people to get bored in my training. A lot of people don't have just been told they need to be on the training. They don't really want to be there. So to be honest with you, I think that life's too short to be boring. Maybe that should be my mantra because... You know, you've got to keep people's um, attention with this. And, and one of the biggest things I must say about having ADHD is that I don't take medication for this on the weekend. So, Hung, um, Hung you met my husband recently. And I just have to say that man is a saint because to try and have a conversation with me some days, I literally can just go and have, in 30 seconds, I can have 100 different conversations. And he's just like, um, and Hung knows my husband's a professor, very intelligent man, will be like, I'm just already three conversations back. Did we finish that conversation? And and and, and it's sorry, Adam fell off his chair. He was laughing. So <laughs> I was, was going <laughs> oh, I recognise that. I recognise yeah, that. And I just feel awful because he's so together and so calm. And here I am, just you know, all over the place so frequently. And um, it's just one of those things you have to be conscious with, and it gets easier with age. Adam, like you. I don't drink nearly as much as I used to. I cut out meat three and a half years ago. I stay away from sugar. I try and get at least eight hours sleep every night if I can. Um, you know, it's there's certain things that you can do and also being conscious of it. I know Angela Cripps is on, on this call as well. I did a recruiting gym session with her this morning, and I was so conscious that I cut her off about three or four times. Um, and I had to really pull myself back because it wasn't all about me, you know. Very, very interesting. I think Adam's just frozen as well. Um, so let me just uh, follow. Don't worry, you've, oh. you've caused oh, him to fall off his chair and now you've caused him to deep freeze. So uh, I don't know what's going on. Oh, Welcome back. back, Adam. Um, I missed you. There he is. Oh, yeah. it's, um, usually, it's usually Hung who disappears on us, right? <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm usually one having the kit when uh, Adam's holding the fort. But uh, there we go. Adam, go ahead. Can you, can you hear me? I've got a question. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. All right, you can hear me again. Um, so... <laughs> Vanessa, one of the one of the things that I find interesting about the like things that I've got as abilities, which other people don't have, mm -hmm. is the ability to do the same thing over and over and over again. So I can like when I used to run a talent sourcing business, 
I used to do a lot of the work and I used to be able to sit and put together a list of 500 software engineers or financial accountants or whatever it was. And my wife used to say to me, how the hell can you do that? How can you do the same thing over and over again? And in fact, during lockdown, she came, she used to come in and go, you're, you're, you're doing the same demo and saying exactly the same things like five times. How can you do the same like software demo over and over again? I think that within the kind of area of talent sourcing within our overall TA world, um, there's probably a higher degree of neurodiversities than in some of the others. Would you agree with that? I do think so, to be honest with you. And Adam, when it comes to repetitive tasks, it's actually so interesting. I think this is the male and female thing. And this is why I've built an online academy now is because I've been delivering the same training for four years. Yes, it changes and updated, but literally, I think everyone in this house, including the cat, can recite my training because I've said it so many times. It's not time for me to move on to other things. So I'm not that good with repetitive things, but so interesting. I literally spent Tuesday and Wednesday on Sourcing Summit, yesterday on HRTX. And the number of people that started their presentation saying, I'm a talent sourcer for these major companies or I run my own business as a talent sourcer and I have ADHD. It yeah. literally is such a thing in our community, especially yeah. around talent sourcing. I yeah. think that's why a lot of us have moved into talent sourcing, because like for me, full life cycle recruitment, no thanks, rather pull up my toenails or pliers, um, but give me talent sourcing any day. Yeah. And I think that that's our industry just attracts these these types of people. And we were sitting at a source con in Seattle back in 2019 and around the table of speakers literally every single one of us was and if you weren't they were on like a waiting list to actually go and see someone to be diagnosed the the other aspect is not that so when i i talked about the like be, being able to sit and do repetitive tasks the other one is the extremely enhanced normally very enhanced creativity in in adhd so the ability to think about sourcing challenges in a way that not everybody's mind, you know, has the ability to do to be able to un to be able to identify rocks that you might look under, which not everybody can think about, and to get almost get lost on the internet, trying to you know, in pursuit that of that rabbit hole is a lot bigger for people with ADHD. I, yes, great yes. description. Great description. Yes, yes. So, so absolutely. But I think people with ADHD, because we think so differently, we actually are quite creative outside of our jobs. Like I look at my photography. And my photography, like taking photos, I can sit by myself quietly waiting for an animal to look at me where I can't even sit quietly when it comes to, you know, answering emails. But just that creative side, and I've actually just discovered another creative passion that I have, which is going to be coming out in the next couple of months. But it's just, it's just different. And I think it's great because we're never going to be bored because our brains are always going to find something. And then we latch on, but then we obsess about it. And then we completely obsess over this is the only thing that we want to do. And, and that's a big thing for me. I don't know if you suffer from that. So we all know ADHD is genetic. My father is very ADHD. So is my brother. And they completely obsess about things. And I, and I know that I do the same too. Tunnel, tunnel vision. It's a, there's an ability to do, which is maybe with the lists thing, being able to do over and over. But certainly an ability to, an ability to focus. Uh, ironically, mm. the ability to, when you go into hyper-focus, to be able to block everything else out and just go, this is mm. the thing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. 100%. And that normally for me is when I get back from holiday and I'm working on my photography. Literally, I can ignore all of the work stuff, but I want to edit my photos. 
you know, this is very interesting and we could obviously continue this conversation even further. Um, however, I'm thinking about how we might be able to um, uh, bring everyone else on and off at the same time. So I'm going to uh, leave it with a final question for you, Vanessa, um, in, in, the, in the group context, because that was very interesting that you mentioned when you first got into recruiting, you were a high performer, but your boss actually identified that your behavior actually caused an impact uh, with the other group, group members in the team. And that's something to be aware of here also. So for instance, another context we need to be aware of, if you're a team leader, or you're a manager, or whatnot, and you see sort of circumstances of this type, um, how does the person who has the condition uh, become aware of this behavior? And is it possible to moderate that? Um, or is it simply a case where they have to kind of maybe uh, uh, operate in a slightly you know, different group context? In order to perform and not, uh, you know, be a deleterious effect to, to other team members. Yeah. So I was always the person who would find it very funny to wrap someone's chair in toilet paper or post-it note their desk or, you know, in the middle of a, of a. I mean, just being the clown, um, the, the class clown, just turned into the office clown, um, just because otherwise, again, we go back to life being boring, right? Um, so. I think it's it, it comes down to the person who's also suffering with ADHD. I've never been embarrassed to say to anyone I've got ADHD. You know, it's it's. I think a lot of people have other conditions where it might be slightly more of an awkward thing to talk about. Um, but I would just really encourage both parties to have open conversations. Like Adam says, I've diagnosed a lot of my friends, boyfriends, husbands, you know, through the years because I recognize their behavior. And I think it all just comes down to you have to have one person in your team like that. And just really understand that they're not a bad person. They're not disrupting because they, they they're horrible and they're trying to destroy or sabotage anything. It's just the way that they are that, that their makeup is. And it's it again, it's open communication. In fact, sorry, could I just right. add something else to that? Because that's a really important point. <clears throat> really important point. The the disruptive part, because I was super disruptive. And and you know, until probably I was about 40, I was really disruptive. Uh, every opportunity. I look back at so many people I was at school with who were the bad kids, the naughty kids. And they had, they, they clearly today had, I, I know they had ADHD or some other form of neurodiversity. And some of them have gone into the wrong paths in life because they were branded as the bad kid or the naughty kid. This is a real tragedy. Mm, absolutely. I was very lucky that I always, I was never branded as the bad kid because I think I had, quite a warm personality one of my other nicknames has always been the labrador because i'm gonna like jump on you and lick you until you accept me as a friend you know it's it's, it's that kind of behavior it's not the, the the really horrible kids but yeah i agree that i mean maybe if we had taught them differently in a different kind of classroom setup it wouldn't have ended up you know in tragedy at the later stage yeah yeah i think there's a lot of wasted talent um and at the same time i think you know how do you actually get it together in a group so that we can accommodate people that have different ways of thinking and behaving, but at the same time, we also have to think about other people that might be sort of adversely affected by that. Um, because there's other individuals that might end up sort of uh, through no fault of their own, also having to deal with that impact. So we haven't fixed it at that group level. We'll talk about that hopefully when we get back. Uh, Van, Van, I'm going to have to get you off the off the screen for a second. Thank and then you bring, for having bring, me. Bring you back on. So if you're going to hang on, oh, with I'll this, see we'll, you later. Yeah, yeah, yeah we'll on. bring you back. Okay. How cool is Van, huh? She's such a nice lady um, and, and so articulate here as well. Okay, I'm going to, did I say I was going to bring on Mike? I think I was. Balash, hold on. We're going to bring you on in a bit. 
Um, so we'll bring Mike Cohen on, who I believe has been on the show before, um, but not often enough um, because he's such a great uh, contributor to the community here. Adam, are you still got a hard stop at three? Is that correct? Yep. Okay, no worries. Okay, uh, no worries, Mike. I'll try and invite you again. Just... Uh, right. There we go. Got to accept on screen. We should be there. I'll just tell you my favorite bit of what Vanessa was just talking about. She's just validated some of the things that I said, so I'm not an idiot after all. <laughs> I never thought you're an idiot, uh, uh, Adam. You know, I just thought, you know, there's certain things you struggle with. That's all, fella. Uh... <laughs> Hi, Mike. All right. There he is. Ba Batman. Batman. Hey, guys. Hey, Adam. Hey, Han. How you you've doing, man? The, you've got the hair of a Batman baddie, a Batman enemy, though. Yeah, yes, I sure do. I like to, you know, keep you guessing what's going on under the cowl. Um, hey, Hung, I'm I'm doing well, man. How about I, you? This is uh, this is super cool. Hey, listen, I'm really pleased to have you on the show. Finally, um, I know it's been an absolute age to get you here. Um, and uh, for the folks who don't know you, Mike, would you like to quickly introduce yourself? Who you are? What it is you do? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm Mike Cohen. People call me Batman. I respond to, to either. Um, I own Wayne Technologies. Haha. Uh, we are sourcing as a service, and I do consulting for training and helping organizations set up their sourcing practice. Uh, lived in the U.S., married to the coolest woman and most interesting person I've ever met. I've got two dogs. Fantastic stuff, Mike. Um, and definitely follow Mike. Got loads of content, interesting stuff on sourcing and stuff like that as well. Uh, Mike, we're talking about this topic, mental challenges um, of recruiters, how it's affected your sort of life, how, how you've developed coping strategies, how you've become aware of how it impacts others also. Uh, I wonder whether you could take us through your story. Um, you know, well, what is the your own perception of your own kind of uh, a condition, if you want to call it this, and uh, and when, the, when you discover it and, and how you dealt with it? Yeah, it's a longer story, so I'm going to try to go real quick through it. Um, so I grew up in an interesting family, a uh, really large Italian-Jewish family. I was the fourth of five kids and, uh, you know, father with OCD and, and a little bit of an elitist. Mom uh, was uh, suffers from, like, depression and very, very different type of environment growing up. And it forced some... Um, character behaviors uh to develop and uh most of my behavior as a child was kind of just attributed to me being funny and outgoing and all of those normal like extrovert seeming tendencies um so in school i was a, i was a little different from van um i was a straight a honor roll accelerated classes graduated with a 96 average in in high school um but i was it kind of just did whatever the hell I wanted all the time. Uh, and I like, I was friendly with the teachers and the security guards. And so like, I would just leave school and come back. And because I got good grades, people just didn't give a shit and kind of let me do whatever. Um, so I did well. However, when I was 12 or so, uh, some actual like anger issues started coming to light. And uh, the anger issues as I've gone through tons of therapy and recovery and stuff, uh, I realized were a result of not having my child needs met uh, at the time, mentally, emotionally. Um, and I had great parents, I had a great family, they did the best they could with the tools they had at the time. Um, but it started manifesting itself in really weird ways. So I would get like rage angry 
at inanimate objects. Never at humans. I've, I've never been in a fight with another human. I, like, it's never my thing. But like, you know, when you're like closing your like your underwear drawer and like it gets stuck like crooked and you're like trying to push it in, it won't won't go in. And so like a, a, a balanced person would take it out, straighten it, put it back in. I would lose my shit. I'm talking like kicking the dresser drawer, trying to get it shut. Like what the hell is going on? And the the final straw that my parents decided uh, when I was 12 to get me in front of a psychiatrist um, was when my friend and I were playing outside with a racquetball and the ball went into our neighbor's rose bush. And I was like, all right. And I went in to like grab it. And like, I went in like two or three times. I kept getting pricked. And then like the third time, like two thorns got me and like drew blood. And I went just red and chopped down their rose bush, uh, which is a wild overreaction to getting to getting pinged. Also, my neighbors weren't super happy about that because it's a gorgeous big rose bush. Uh, and so my parents realized like, okay, something's off here. So started going to a psychiatrist at a really, really young age, right? It was 12, right around 12 to 13 and going through years of psychiatry and psychology by the time I was 15. So like two, two and a half years later, um, they were relatively confident that I was bipolar. Um, I didn't, uh, and, and never really have gone more to the, um, depression side of things. So uh, people always ask in any medical profession, like I see your bipolar, have you ever had any suicidal or self-harm thoughts? I'm like, no, I haven't. Um, uh, uh, however, I get super manic. And like those anger signs were signs of me being just wildly manic and, and out of control. So um, they put me on a ton of medicine when I was 15. Like I, people take like milligrams of medicine. I was on 1.2 grams of medicine at the age of 15 and it turned me into an absolute zombie for like a year. And I, I just wasn't me. I, I didn't have like the energy and like the, the vibrance that I know that like I have and I love. So uh, when I was a senior, uh, after probably halfway through the first semester of senior year, uh, I stopped taking medicine and started smoking marijuana like pretty aggressively and got to a point where I was smoking like, I don't know, two ounces a month um, for, I don't know, a decade. Uh, so the diagnosis, sorry, I just saw the question, uh, bipolar. Um, so I got diagnosed with bipolar very early in life at 15. Um, stopped taking medication. I stopped smoking marijuana compulsively like that, uh, at, geez, how old was I? 29, I guess. Uh, and at that point went back to a psychiatrist and, uh, she reconfirmed like, yeah, you have your bipolar. And I was like, yeah, I know. Thanks. Uh, so got back on medicine again. Um, and she said, you know, outside of that, you, you go through and all this testing, like some other areas that I'd have some concerns around and got diagnosed with ADHD, uh, which surprises me not even a little bit. And so I've been on uh, a combination of the highest dosage of Lamotrigine possible and the highest dosage of what was Adderall until the global shortage and is now Vyvanse. Um, so on one of the higher dosages of Vyvanse as well. It's good that you got the re-diagnosis yeah. for bipolar because I've heard so many terrible situations of people getting diagnosed. I mean, I don't know what age you are, but like people getting diagnosed at 15, let's say 25 years ago or whatever. And 
people didn't know what the hell they were talking about then. So actually, it was something totally different. So it was good to get the re-diagnosis yeah. later in life. Yeah. Mike, um, um, quick question for, for you. Um, in sort of your... So you explain sort of the, the rage issues and the anger issues on the inanimate objects and what have you. Um, and that, that was the trigger that caused your parents to decide, say, okay, let's get seek, seek some professional help. Um, when you were uh, sort of on the initial phase of medication, um, I guess that was just like, a, did that just like sedate that anger? Was that the, 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 the concept of that type of prescription to say, right, we're going to just like reduce the possibility of this rage happening and, you know, essentially at the present, right? It was, uh, it, it was, it was to, to reduce that sort of extreme reaction. Um, and that's what, yeah, that's what happened. Okay. Um, so uh, moving off that as a, as a young man, you decided to, I guess, to self-medicate um, with uh, marijuana. Um, what can you tell us about how your behavior changed when you were smoking that amount of marijuana? Did, did you also reduce the rage uh, degree or did other things emerge uh, from, from, from uh, your self-medication, I guess? Yeah, so I definitely uh, rage lowered. I've I've never met uh, like a truly angry rage stoner, uh, which, which is fine. Um, but I was I was high for nine years, right? And like it at the time seemed just very normal. I was completely functional. You would never know um, that I was I was high all the time. But like uh, it the so good good things. It lowered kind of that that rage. The the, the unfortunate piece though is it it tends to lower most emotions and drive right it's, it's kind of what marijuana does why people like smoke a little marijuana at night and like just like chill out and the, the problem is it lowers drive it lowers mental acuity and it definitely affects memory so i have swaths of my life that i just i don't remember like nothing i don't remember a single birthday until i was like 12 or 13 and i like even as an adult, like uh, my wife the other day brought up like, oh, do you remember when we went out to that thing? And I was like, I literally have zero recollection of what you're talking about. Um, so it, it it helps, but it, it hurt more than it helped in the grand scheme of things, especially when compared to like modern medicine and what that does for me now. Mike, your description of that uh, reminds me very much of my own um, experience with alcohol. Uh, mm -hmm. And like, I mean, I was probably quite frankly, I was probably drunk five, six times a, a week mm. for about 20 years. Mm -hmm. And I have got sweet, it, it lowers your, it lowers your ambition. Yeah. It lower it, and it, and it affects your memory as well. And I, my wife often says to me, do you remember such and such? I'm like, no. And I'm not talking about, I'm talking about when I was a child. I, I, I don't remember a hell of a lot because right. I think I've damaged my brain with uh, too much alcohol. Yeah. Mine, mine comes from, I, I, and I, experimented a lot uh with with other drugs that i'm sure didn't help either uh which which is fine but like as an adult now and, and the medicine that exists uh hung and i'm sure this is probably the next the next piece was uh current medicine now just takes the edge off so so bipolar didn't actually make me angry what it did was add a really sharp uh edge to my emotions so i went from zero to 100 there was no like middle ground i, I had zero ability to be equanimous Right. And just be like, okay, being uncomfortable or okay, being angry. And, and part of that was my up, up, upbringing, right? Parents always saying like, well, don't be angry or don't be sad or don't be scared. Like it was a thing to like get over or get through. And the other part was just my mental uh, imbalance of, I would just, I would flip. It was zero to a hundred all the time. Now medicine just kind of takes that edge off where like, 
my proclivity is to like get angry, but I'm immediately like, meh, I just pull the fucking dry out and put it back in again like a normal person. Can I ask you an uncomfortable question, Mike? Um, of course. Have you, can you recall a situation where you did not have access to this medicine for whatever reason? Um, and you, you basically went into, you basically exposed, if you like, all of the, um, uh, the condition, if you, if you will, to, to the world as it was, uh, did you develop alternative non-medicinal uh, measures against this or, or is it not possible to control? Uh, so long term, no, I don't, I don't believe it is. But again, you know, at Adam's point, it's, it's, a. uh, uh a range, right? It's a spectrum. Uh, everybody sits somewhere on the spectrum. I'm just higher towards this one side. Um, so long-term, could I like stop taking medicine at some point in my life? I don't think so. And, and I'm okay with that. I like, I think most people with mental illness go through, or at least I did a period of like, I'm broken. What's wrong with me? Uh, I'm not like everybody else. I'm, you know, I'm fucked up, whatever that that is. Right. Um, but now I've kind of accepted that. Now, the example you're asking for happened literally this week. Uh, I went to Dallas to train a company on sourcing and I forgot my medicine at home. Uh, and day one was okay, which is my driving day. Day two was not as okay. And it was the day I was doing my training. And so things I've learned over time, exercise, have to 100%. So I got up at like 5.30 in the morning and went and ran and lifted. Uh, number two is eating healthy. Uh, when I eat a bunch of junk, it like marijuana lowers my ambition and I'm feeling like crap. So I'm like, man, my general philosophy is F it, right? If I'm like, oh, well, I already did that thing. And so you might as well go off the deep end everywhere else. Uh, and the other is meditation. Uh, I hate meditating uh, and I'm terrible at it, but I, I do it four or five times a week for 10 minutes a day on calm. Uh, because of the ADHD, my, my brain squirrels a lot. So I'll, you know, focus on the breath and I'm like, yes, focus on the breath. And also that to-do list. Cause you, oh my God, you didn't add that thing to the to-do. Okay. Maybe I should stop meditation right now and go add. No, 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 no. Take a breath and come back to the breath again. And it gives me a focal point. So during the middle of the day on, on lunch break, I sat by myself for a minute. I put headphones in. I didn't play anything on my headphones. It just tells other people to leave me alone. Don't talk to me. Um, and I just did some breathing exercises. So a bunch of it was just focus on my breath. Take one minute and like, okay, center myself. And then boom. So it's, it's a little bit of that awareness. And then a little bit of knowing when I've had too much, uh, too much interaction. I'm, I'm actually an introvert by nature. I get, I get super overwhelmed in large groups and small spaces. It's the ambient noise that sets me off and knowing like, oh, I need to take a step back. Yeah, that's, that's an interesting good. point. I, I, I thought, I absolutely thought until about two years ago that I was a massive extrovert. And I've realized having cut out sugar, having cut out alcohol, having done things like that, I realized I'm absolutely not. So it's, it's interesting the way that a lot of people you see as extroverts because they come across that way. Um, they very well, possibly aren't. So Adam, I think it's interesting that people, I think, have a misconstrued definition of introvert and extrovert. People are like, oh, an extrovert's a people person. An introvert likes to be by themselves. And it's, it, no, no. Those are tendencies of that character style. But an yeah. introvert just simply means I recharge, my batteries recharge when I'm alone 
or by myself or in a minimal interaction situation. And my battery drains when I'm surrounded by people and it does. But when I'm on, I'm on. Like I like I will go for three or four days straight and just like I'm on all the time, right? Like Vanessa said, it's like you're putting on a show. Right? Funny, engaging, keep, keep people there with you, find ways to motivate and inspire. But when I'm done, I'm I'm done, done. Like Crystal, my wife knows when I come home from a conference, I literally will take an entire day, sit in my pajamas, order sushi and watch anime. And just like, that's what I do for an entire day. And she's just like, cool with it. That's great. Um, I've got to go, right Batman. Up. Batman, I absolutely love that. I'm sad I'm missing Balash. Balash, I'm looking forward to catching up later and, and watching the recording of this. Hung, thanks very much. See you all soon. No worries. Thanks, Alan. See you later. Um, okay, um, Batman, I'm going to let you go. Thank. Stay yes. around because I'm going to talk to Balash and then bring all of you back on, okay? So this is going to yep. last for another 10, 15 minutes, folks. I hope that's okay. Um, great to see you, man. All right, folks, um, let's get Balash on. Balash, you've been very patient. Thank you very much. Oh, he's actually not there. Um, he's actually disappeared. Um, I think uh, maybe we expanded too much time. I'm really sorry about that, Balash. Um, no worries. Let's bring Van and, and, and Michael back on. Um, I want to just discuss a few more things before we close the show um, and, uh, and, and talk a little bit about, you know, um, we've talked about the individual journeys. I want to talk also now about okay, what are you doing if you're managing a team? Uh, hey, Mike, sorry, <laughs> bringing you back on, man. Uh, straight away, Balash, I'm afraid, has left us. Um, I wonder whether, um, I might have got the ordering wrong there. Um, but hopefully, he's, he can see us and he can come, come back at some point. But if not, we'll, we'll bring him back to have another chat. Um, okay, um, listen, uh, last five minutes, I guess, five, ten minutes of this, um, uh, bring us all back on really to talk about, um, Firstly, thank you so much for sharing your individual stories. I think very, very enlightening. Um, and even the action of, of saying these things, actually, Balash is messaging me here. Let's see, saying, is he away? Um, yeah, he's got to go. Uh, no worries, Balash. Apologies, mate. Um, we just overran um, and I got the ordering wrong, I suspect. Um, okay, so, um, so, so going to um, what we know now, you're both mature professionals. You've gone through sort of stages. You've got coping strategies. <laughs> Mike, I'm talking about age, bro. I'm not talking about... Oh, <laughs> yes, got it, got it. <laughs> no, but I'm taking not... that as a compliment. I'm going to own yeah, it. I'm mature. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm telling everyone. Like, do you know, you, you, I, I suspect it's one of these that might get better as you get older, simply because you're able to recognize a few things. And, you know, generally speaking, as you get older, I think you end up having to co develop approaches to deal with it. Otherwise, you just end up like constantly crashing into uh, issues which might be very, very deleterious to you. Um, so um, I wonder whether you could kind of take a view on um, sort of how it's, how it's like when you're managing people. You've both been in positions where you're in front of group or you're in team or you're with a group of other folks. What do you do when you identify someone, let's say, who is uh, behaving in a way that you think, okay, uh, there's probably something we should talk about here. I'm not a medical professional, so we're not asking people to, to go and, you know, give, give diagnoses. But how would you approach the, the group management when you have people behaving in different ways? Um, any thoughts on this? Uh, Mike, do you want to go ahead uh, and give this a shot? Yeah, uh, yeah, this is a this is a tough one, but near and dear. So uh, for, I for I think it starts before then, which is to say, like, have you created an environment of safety uh, for people to share these things? So like one of the things I've always done is uh, really in depth one on ones. 
that have nothing to do with your metrics and how you're doing in the job that solely have to do with you and your goals professionally and you and your goals personally. Um, so creating safety is really important. Second is just sharing and being vulnerable. Um, I, I just asked Crystal, uh, Van, you'll appreciate this. I just asked Crystal like earlier this week, I was like, why do you think people open up to me so quickly? Like it, it's one of those things where like I've met someone and an hour later, they're like, okay, let me tell you about like all my childhood drama. And I'm like, uh, okay, yeah, like like tell me, like I wanna hear all of this, but I think it's because I I share openly uh, about myself and my my mental state and addiction and all the things that like I'm really not great at. Um, and so I think part of it is coming to the table and sharing your own story with them. And then the other part is just asking them, what do you want? What, what like, what's your end goal uh, of what you want to achieve? And uh, what I notice is people who struggle in these areas aren't achieving those things or are aiming to achieve things that are beneath their capabilities. And so I, I can follow up and say, why do you think that is? And, and you'll get like the generic bullshit answers of like, oh, well, you know, it's time management or this and that. And I just ask again, why do you think that is? Or tell me more about that. I'm trying to get away from asking the question why, because it puts people on the defensive. So I, I'm trying to ask like, tell me more about that. Um, and that, it, it allows people to then open up. Yeah, amazing. Um, great response. So folks, just to reiterate what Michael said there, kind of, by example, as a leader, by example, um, you can demonstrate uh, it's a safe conversation to have by openly having that conversation um, and, and creating the space for it. It's literally creating the space in the calendar or creating the space in the day or just creating the, the, the culture to say, you know what, sometimes it's okay to have this, this, this type of dialogue. Um, I love the idea of having the deep one-to-ones. Um, this is about getting to know your staff. Uh, it's not about managing performance. It's not about all of these tactical behaviors. Get to know this person. Uh, get them to know you. Uh, that's how relationships are built, that mutual exchange, that lowering of the barriers. That's where the the the, 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 the true relationships can be forged. And that's what when, the, when the, those barriers are down, that's when the, the pipe of information, if you like, is just simply wider to go through, right? If you don't know each other, there's, there's like very little, uh, the, the pipe is very thin. You can't put any information through there. Um, so those are some wonderful tactics uh, that any manager, I think, could uh, really deploy. Uh, Van, how about your thoughts on this? Um, how would you kind of handle it? You know, Let's say you're managing a team, leading a group and so on. Uh, how would you kind of uh, 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 deal with uh, people who are behaving in ways that you've identified, okay, uh, maybe they're uh, on that neuro, uh, the, the neuro atypical, let's say. So to be honest with you, I'm so glad that you, you've you raised this because I'm going to take it from a different angle. And that's just the way my ADH brain works is that in my previous uh, career, before I opened my own business for 10 years, I was uh, the talent acquisition specialist for a tech company. And with that, the company grew and they built actually a recruitment agency and I was made the manager and I had to manage other recruiters. I realized very quickly that I am the worst manager in the world. And the reason is I cannot switch off between being someone's best friend and them sharing everything with me. And then suddenly what happens is they don't work on a weekend when, you know, we all have to work on a weekend when recruitment, when it's the end of the month and we've got numbers to reach and they spend the weekend drilling and arrive on Monday with a hangover. So I quickly realized in my career that I should never manage anyone else. And it was actually a very big thing for me to get over with the ADHD because I felt like a complete failure. I thought, what's next? 
I mean, I still stayed in the job. I was still there for another three or four years, but I isolated myself from managing people. I kept doing the recruitment. And that's why I'm a solopreneur and I don't hire staff is because, to be honest with you, I, I just don't trust myself to manage other people. I collaborate with a lot of people. Um, Mark's one of the people I collaborate with. Um, I have a lot of people that I trust that I'll bring in, but I will never employ anyone full time because I think we need to get realized is that being a manager isn't the pinnacle of your career. I'd much rather go down the route of being a subject matter expert and I encourage more people to do that because there's a big stigma of climbing that corporate ladder and I'm a director. I mean, my own company, I call myself the head cheerleader because what's a director for heaven's sake? Be a head cheerleader. Why not? Do you know what? You make a really good point and I really appreciate your self-awareness there. Um, I share a little bit of that, even though I don't think I've, I'm, I have a, 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 the same conditions, but I, I recognize my own kind of poor management um, and part of the reason why I don't hire anybody is I don't mm. believe that I'm a good manager um so uh, uh we need to find sort of uh, so firstly uh, like organizational design uh role design career pathing all of those things can help uh because we've probably in the traditional way of designing a career path um it, it doesn't actually help individuals that are neurodiverse because it means that you're forcing people up into a managerial position uh, that may not suit their uh, suit their capability 100%. or suit their interest yeah um, and in fact, now that I recall back in my corporate days, there was a whole bunch of managers that should never be managers. Um, do you know yeah. what I mean? But they, they just got, they For accepted sure. the role. They accepted the role because they needed Because the, they were good job. at their job. Yes, it's the Peter principle. You're the best yeah. software engineer on the team, so you should manage other software engineers. Like No. And that's classically what happens in recruiting, um, where recruiting managers almost always previously the best recruiter, um, but they may have absolutely the worst management skills of other people. Um, so I, I really do hope that we can do more in terms of career pathing uh, more creatively um, and making sure we don't lose people out of the industry um, or indeed uh, mi misallocate them into roles that yeah. really are not good good for them or good for the people that they then go ahead and manage. So I appreciate that response very much, uh, uh, Vanessa. And um, I think that it's, people need to realize that that doesn't label you a failure. I have been far more successful as a solopreneur than I would have been managing a team of recruiters. Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, uh, the more conversations of this type we have, I think the better it is. And, and we have moved on a great deal, right? Um, I mean, again, leaning on to our maturity folks, uh, you know, we're old enough to remember where, you know, any type of uh, interaction with the medical health profession was, was stigmatic. Um, and in fact, you know, you'd be, you'd be labeled or people would be speaking behind you, behind your back, et cetera, et cetera. I really hope that we've moved the conversation way beyond that so that we can have open conversations. The more chat we have, the better. Um, and, uh, and, and yeah, it's one of these where I think, you know, we open up the air a little bit, then these things can emerge. We'll probably find that everyone has foibles. Everyone has kind of uh, different ways of behaving yeah. that you could say is probably everyone could be described as neuroatypical in some way. You can imagine, right? What is the, what is a typical person? Um, you know, maybe that is, or that in itself is the wrong model. Um, so you might head towards a world where actually we can be much more respectful of individual differences um, and still find a way where we can all collaborate uh, in, in an effective way. Um, folks, we've ran way over time, so I need to apologize surprise, to everyone surprise. for that. Um, <laughs> that's, that's inevitable. I mean, can we do this again with Balash? I feel so bad for the guy. 
Don't worry, I'll bring Balash back on at some point for sure. Um, my apologies to you, Balash, for failing to get you on. Um, but we'll make sure that happens. Um, and definitely we'll keep talking. You know, I think this is an important topic. Um, and uh, it yeah, will be prominent. Um, on I just want to say that if anyone wants to reach out and ask me any questions, I'm really comfortable talking to complete strangers about this. I had a big chat with someone on HRTX um, last night who also has just been diagnosed. I don't know the Vimbara, so, but we're chatting next week because I think the more we talk about this, the safer it becomes for a lot of people. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, you've got Vanessa's details there. Um, I'll I'll reshare them in an email to everyone later. M Mike and Balash and uh, Adam's details I'll share also because they're all very open people and happy to have that conversation. Uh, so please do reach out if you want to uh, talk, make friends, or simply you know educate in some other way. Uh, and exchange of information. That's something we're all going to do. Uh, okay, listen, folks, I'm going to let you go. Um, Mike, great to see you. Um, you have a very good day, sir. Uh, Vanessa, wonderful to see you again. Thanks for staying around us later in the day for you. Um, no worries. Uh, we'll, we'll bring you back at some other point uh, on some other topic um, uh, this year. So make sure that happens. Um, folks, have a good, good, uh, good afternoon, okay? Happy weekend. Bye, everybody. Uh, weren't the, those wonderful people? Um, please do make sure you connect with those two. Um, and uh, I hope everyone's got some value out of uh, out of today's show. Um, I know it's a little bit of a different one uh, from the one we usually do, but occasionally we need to mix it up. Um, and I do like the fact that we're highlighting individuals a little bit um, that we do know in the industry, but perhaps we don't know uh, well enough. So uh, hopefully you enjoyed that. Um, do follow the channel if you're interested in conversational uh, uh, shows of this type. Um, we're going to be back next week with a very interesting topic. Uh, we are talking about tech layoffs um, and the tech labor market from the developer's point of view. Um, we in tech recruitment have obviously been seeing things over the last 12 months with tech layoffs, hiring freezes, uh, bank runs, VC, lack of confidence, et cetera, et cetera. Those things have been happening. We're all recruiters. We talk about it. What are the developers talking about? Um, we've got a bunch of developers joining us next week, folks. Well, I'm going to ask them, how are they seeing the job market? Are they seeing job flow? How do people feel about it? How do they feel about remote? Are they still insisting on high salary, et cetera, et cetera? Uh, if you're a TA, a tech person, uh, tech recruiter, should I say, it is a show for you to join. So make sure you register for that. Um, okay, that's it, everybody. Um, you have a good weekend. Take care of yourself, and we'll see you next week.